Hi, and welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Artscoping is a podcast featuring innovative leaders from the cultural world, ranging from artists to museum directors susceptible to flattery. And it's a pleasure to spend some time today speaking with Dr. Julia Marchari-Alexander, Andrea B. and John H. Laporte, director of the Walters Art Museum. Welcome, Julia. Thanks for joining the conversation on Artscoping. Well, thank you so much, Max. It's really an honor to be here with you. And yes, I am susceptible to flattery. <laughs> but first things first, here we are in the grips of this pandemic and hoping to look forward to a time when something like a familiar world returns. And how are you doing? How is your family doing? We are doing as everyone is our part not to spread the virus by sheltering at home. And we are working very hard to work with our friends and family to make as much impact outside as possible through volunteering or at the museum, creating content that people can enjoy from, from their homes. Yeah. And how about the museum? What's cooking with you and your staff and board? So we are very happily, um, unlike many of our colleagues, actually, we have the, the real privilege of being in a good financial situation, very strong position. So we are working from home on creating more digital content that we can put up on our website and leveraging the digital assets that we already have to provide the, um, the amazing um, visitors online and on now offsite yeah. that we have with, with the treasures of the Walters Art Museum and, and the talent of our staff. Um, making that available to as many people as possible. Yeah. And we are, in fact, paying all of our employees. So we, oh, we are really, we are very privileged to be in that yeah. situation. Yeah, I noticed that there was an announcement from one museum saying they were looking to start laying people off. And I guess my question would be, if a museum does have economic strength and stability, why would one immediately race to do that just a couple of weeks into the, the worst of this? Because ultimately, we all know, we've been through this, what rehiring requires and the suffering it puts upon people to begin with. And then to what end, really, if you're able to float for a little longer? Absolutely. And I and the staff um, who are incredible and the board, um, my senior leadership, both at the board and, and staff level, we, we actually think that it's our duty as a civic institution not to contribute to um, a a really severe crisis of unemployment and um, work uh, insecurity. And yeah. so it's not just for our, in, our fabulous staff members who we love and we, they're part of our family, but it is also for society. Right, and it's also as having, having experienced downturns before, if the impulse is to lay people off, that impulse has a reverberation effect on other smaller organizations that make the assumption they have to do the same thing. and. The tricky part, of course, is, as you say, it isn't indexed necessarily to the, the needs of the institution. It may be better to hold on a bit longer and try to sort this through. But everybody's Absolutely. making their own choices, I guess. And when trustees come from a business environment, they look at the world a certain way and they have to put on their trustee hat at this time and less their business hat. Absolutely. And, and I think 
it is very challenging for them as well because so many of our trustees are learning along with us. It really is a yeah. shared leadership process. And yeah. I, um, I agree with you that, that these are times when we actually have to work together and right. not against each other. And that is the joy of a museum director squashed lovingly between board and staff and trying to sort it all out. So <laughs> that's your job. Well, I, I have a very nice uh, two, two slices of bread. So I'm <laughs> thrilled. I'm, I, as I say, I'm in a really privileged position. Yeah. Well, I, I know you also host a monthly segment called Open Access on WIPR, the NPR affiliate in Baltimore as a podcast. And so I thought I would give you a chance to be the guest for once. And I wondered if you had any tips you could share with this newbie host about how to do this well. So I don't have any really significant information except to say that my favorite part about being a radio show host is the headphones. I mm. love wearing the headphones. I always wanted to be a singer in the band and, you know, put my hand up to my ear. Right. So whenever anyone asks you if you need the headphones, right. I say yes. And do you sing on the program? Um, only when I'm not being recorded. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to refrain just to give you advance warning. I'm not going to be singing today. So that that's one tip I haven't gotten, but we're just going to plunge. I do think you have your headphones on. I do. I do have headphones on and I too like that. So I get the whole premise. Well, let's just start with your background. You got an MA and a PhD in the history of art from Yale University but apparently that wasn't enough. And you also have a master's degree in French literature from New York University. So I, I would note you're not only the first woman to direct the Walters Art Museum, but also probably the most educated museum director in the country. And you wear it very lightly. So getting all those credentials, how has that served you as director, would you say? Well, I think um, it was a lot of school. Yeah. <laughs> so it serves me by making me grateful that I'm not in school right now. Yeah. Um, so, but I do think that the best educators and intellectuals really are those people who do wear their learning very lightly. So I take that as a giant compliment um, because really your job as a, as an educator is to get other people excited about learning and to spark curiosity in them. So while it's terrific for me to know a lot of things, the goal of what I do is really to, to spark that curiosity in others and to incite someone else to be passionate about something. So if I can create spaces in which I can pursue or channel or, you know, have others sprinkle others with their secret sauce, I feel like I've done my job. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you how you got to your job, but I'm curious because you raised the topic of how people think about training and what type of experience you can bring to bear. A lot of museum boards today are interested in candidates who have varied backgrounds, i.e. not necessarily art history. And it does create an interesting mix of people at the Association of Art Museum Directors meeting when you start seeing quite a few incumbent directors who are new to basically the study of art. So I'm curious how you feel about that trend and what you think is best for the institutions in general. Well, I think that art and the interpretation of works of art is really at the very core of what we do. We collect, preserve, interpret, and display um, incredible works of art from across the globe and across time. So at the very least, you have to have someone who believes in the mission of an art museum as a place where art 
and works of art and creativity is at the core. I know a lot of these uh, museum directors who don't come at it from a traditional art history PhD. Um, and I think the ones who are the most successful are the ones who surround themselves with people who are experts in art history or in other aspects of of the business of the museum. So, you know, the, the great thing about diversity is when you have the, the right minds around the table, it's the collective work that, that makes something um, really a vibrant place. And so mm -hmm. I would say for me, it's important, it is important to have someone on your senior team who is a specialist in art and who really believes in museums and the yeah. role of museums in society. Um, but you can get to that a lot of different ways. Yeah, I suppose you can. I guess my perspective remains that a good fundraiser is somebody who can bring passion and clarity to the mission. And an art historian typically can bring a lot to that table with their experience and wisdom and, and knowledge about the history of art and about art that makes them effective fundraisers. So that's my pitch to boards as they're searching for directors. And I won't get you into And I will, I will second, I mean, I will second that as well. I think it is um, really hard to find leaders who are, um, are able to talk about art, who are not, who don't have some kind of degree in art history or history or even literature. It's, it really is about how you think and what you believe. It is really important to have. Yeah, and apparently... Apparently, expertise is back in fashion, I gather, from the where is Dr. Fauci trending on Twitter. Uh, apparently, that's <laughs> become important to this country again, at least for some people. So, Julia, you finished your doctorate. You went, did you go straight on to the master's in French, or was that just in your evening free hours no. or something? So I actually did it the opposite way. I had a kind of double life in um, college, trying to decide whether I wanted to go and live and be French. And so I did my master's in French before I went on to my PhD in art history. And um, it, was, it was a really, really good thing for me to do. It was an old fashioned uh, literature course. Mm -hmm. And um, as I pursued my PhD in art history, the primacy of the object um, really came out of my study of literature. So uh, as, a, as someone who ended up doing a lot more material culture than critical theory, um, the object and the equivalent of the text in the world of art has always been at the center for me as the, the totem or the, the object through which you can actually um, see history and see mm -hmm. the future. And then also how um, it is the, um, the, the place that, that situates us in our time too. It, it lives in our time, right? So oh. you are part of that. But how did you dodge the Scylla and Charybdis of deconstruction and structuralism and the fear of the object and the fear of human agency and the fear of actually saying definitively, this is what I know? How did you get away from that, that sort of French tradition in the study of art, literature, epistemology, whatever? Right, right. Uh, so I was really clear when I decided to go to art history that I was not going to be able to be that kind of textual scholar, having done my my MA in France. Uh, so that was a choice that I made, and it actually directed me to the art history program that at the time was one of the few art history PhD programs in which um, objects and museum teaching were still happening. Um, so I went to Yale where it was very much um, an object-oriented 
um, not critical theory filled mm -hmm. department. And we, we, it's very interesting because the people who were at Yale in my year, in the, my cohort or the years surrounding me, most of us are in museums now. Um, so people always talk about the Williams Mafia. I, there's a kind of sneaky Yale Mafia out there right wow. now. It came out of the Yale department in the 90s. But it's interesting because I guess the museum world typically is seen as revanchist by the world of ac academics and College Art Association members who are effectively not deeply interested in the study of the object other than as illustrative of some theoretical premise. And so we represent a sort of derriere guard of research. But my suspicion is it will come back, that it will, this interest in the authentic in our digital age will come back. Absolutely. And I think the the whole switch over in terms of understanding that history is not um, what someone said, the unspooling of a straight line of thread, um, that is actually uh, inherently, it, it, it is inherent in objects. You don't see one thing. You see lots and lots of things and lots of hands of people on a single object. So you can't right. tell just one story. I, mean, I think it's more like a ball of yarn that a cat is playing with personally, but I, I, I see your point there. I'll tangle so, that. <laughs> so, so you did that, you got your doctorate, and then what happened? So I actually was um, fortunate enough, I'm, I'm full of fortune, uh, I'm accused of being Pollyanna all the time, <laughs> um, but I got my job at the Yale Center for British Art as assistant curator of paintings when I was writing up my dissertation at yeah. Yale. And if you do British art, which I do, there, there are really two places in the country you want to work. And one is at the Yale Center for British Art and the other is the Huntington. So, And you in, weren't a gardener at the time, so you weren't interested in tilling the Huntington's gardens. Was, <laughs> I'm still not really a gardener. I leave yeah. that to, to my husband. <laughs> Understood. Um, but I did cut my teeth at the Huntington. It was my childhood museum um, mm -hmm. growing up in Southern California. So. So that was that. And then I fairly quickly moved out of curatorial. I spent six years in curatorial and became uh, an associate director and did a lot of jobs um, in that from publishing to exhibition management to kind of strategic thinking about um, programmatic issues. And from there went to San Diego. And as I always like to say, put some time on my California clock, given that I moved to California when I was two. I didn't want to be from Connecticut. Well, and so the San Diego Museum of Art is a remarkable place in a remarkable complex of cultural institutions. What was it like for you? It was really amazing. I went as deputy director, so I actually had um, direct reports, um, which at Yale I was kind of minister without portfolio, and I had had to manage every project without anyone reporting to me. So the management part was actually a huge relief. And we arrived, my husband and I were hired as a twofer. He's one of the great curators of his generation and, and they were smart enough to see that and hire him. Um, and he and I arrived in July of 2008 and we were building with the team of deputy directors a $2 million increase in our budget. And um, as you know, in November of 2008, everything, September really, 2008, everything fell apart. And so we went to taking <laughs> two million dollars out of our budget um so san diego was a roller coaster ride in terms of administration and learning about museum management and um it really was an amazing place to learn from 
my board. And then in terms of the art, it was incredible because it was a jewel that no one had really known about. And so we had this, it was like opening up a box of jewels that had been closed for a really long time and just sharing it with the community. It was, it was, it was magical. It was a yeah. magical time. You know, the Spanish painting collection is extraordinary. The, they have extraordinary manuscripts. It's a phenomenal collection. It, indeed. And it was a great learning for me because to your earlier point about, you know, training. So I have training in European art and one of the greatest, if not the greatest collection in San Diego is their Indian miniature, terrific Asian collection. So it allowed me to expand my horizons and understand that it's, it's really not what you know, it's that you know how to learn. Um, so it's not who you know, you're saying. Well, I know you, so that's really all that matters. <laughs> so then you, you made the leap to Baltimore. When was that? In 2013. Yeah. I had spent five years in San Diego and um, roller coaster. Yeah. But as I always say, when the Walters calls, you say, when can I come? <laughs> um, and again, thinking about the sandwich board and staff, the Walters not only has an incredible collection, but it had a terrific staff, an incredible board. And it was, um, it, it's an institution that is stable and strong. So as a first director, that's, that's what you want. And it also has a collection that is what you've called a time machine. And mm -hmm. in the past, you've talked about various aspects of the collection, including the jewelry collection. And there are so many treasures ranging from manuscripts to paintings to sculpture and decorative arts. What highlights do you bring to the fore? So what I always, I always say, we are a collection of collections. We are not an encyclopedic museum. We are more like the V&A than we are the Met in that we have an incredible collection of objects of all kinds. Um, so Sev porcelain, jewelry, glass, metalwork. And in each of those media, you can actually trace from 7,000 years ago all the way up through contemporary life, just looking, for instance, at metals or at glass. Um, and so we, we can tell different stories with our objects in completely different ways from what an encyclopedic museum does, which is tell stories through a geopolitical or national set of collecting areas. We really also have on that that people know about our, our collection of incredible rare books and manuscripts that's rivaled really only in the museum world in America by the Gettys collection and the Morgans. Um, and some of those manuscripts are actually important because of their bindings. So again, objects that are important, not necessarily because of what's in them, but what surrounds them. And then we also have uh, an incredible collection, this is my word for the day, incredible, uh, of antiquities, Egypt, Greece, and Rome. So you, you can tell those stories, again, through artifacts that range from, you know, an Egyptian shoe sole all the way up to one of the great Greek vases made in southern Italy. And it has a whole school of painting named after it. It's by the Baltimore painter. Well, and that brings us to antiquities for a bit. I think we all know in the field, our listeners may not, about changes in the collecting practices of museums with regard to ancient art. How are you looking at collecting in that field today differently from a few years ago? Well, I think that whole world has 
kind of come to a halt because of the desire to have museums think very carefully about their their role as they buy objects um, on the market to stem the, the illicit trade in antiquities. Um, I We do not buy antiquities right now. Many museums, they eschew buying. I think what's interesting for me, and you know, Max, you've actually written a book about this, so I don't wanna <laughs> step on your toe. No, nobody's read it, so you can go right ahead. I have, um, but I think for me, what's also really interesting is that we focus this this work that we're doing around collecting um, really on antiquities in a way that's about archaeology and the market. Um, but those questions are now beginning to expand out of antiquities to the idea of collecting as a whole and the whole um, underpinning of what a museum represents as um, you know through some people's eyes as the representation of pillage of cultures around the world across time um, and the the appropriation of other people's distant cultures or traditions so I don't think I think we're being a little bit um, arch is maybe the word that I would use today about narrowing it down to whether or not we're buying antiquities when really what we should be thinking of is how do we consider ourselves as part of a, a really troubled history of collecting in the world of museums um, acknowledge that and still celebrate the fact that we are the places that house and show the incredible talent and and creativity of humanity again across time you can travel the world and you can travel across time when you come into a museum and have extraordinary experiences with objects that you would never otherwise yeah. see and you you also can because of your conservation program, which is a strong one, make discoveries even on works that are not in your collection. So recently, your head of book and paper conservation at the Walters, Abigail Quant, was a member of the team assigned the task of investigating a set of Dead Sea Scrolls held at the Museum of the Bible in Washington. Mm -hmm. And she and her colleagues concluded that they're modern forgeries. So I'm curious how prevalent are as yet unmasked forgeries in museum collections? Well, I think there, there are lots and lots of forgeries. And I, frankly, my head starts spinning when people try to define the difference between a fake and a forgery. <laughs> I actually get really interested. And one of the things that the Walters curators and conservators are, are just so interested in doing is starting to think about objects in terms of the lives of the objects and talking about all the different stories. So at the point at which um, something is discovered to be fake, it doesn't necessarily mean, or a forgery, it doesn't mean that it's no longer a worthy object. It just means that its story is different. It has different talismanic qualities to some. It has um, a lot of information about what people at the time thought was interesting or important or um, specific to a certain artist. I mean, yeah. if you think about somebody like Eric Hebern, right? His yeah. paintings are beautiful. And he's creating art that is his own art. Now, sure, he's trying to pass them off as Vermeer's, but, <laughs> but that's interesting. Okay. So, I love your open-mindedness, but tell me, how do you define fake versus forgery? What's the difference for you? Well, I think a forgery is something that is trying to be 
recognizably something else where, uh, for instance, Eric Hebern is trying to uh, create a forgery. It's a new Vermeer painting. It's a lost Vermeer painting. Whereas a fake is just something that is completely modern and it's trying to be passed off for a commercial reason as, um, you know, a Maya, a pot from mm. Guatemala. But I think that also is a really strange distinction. As I say it, it's not really clear. Well, we have these distinctions when we look at the history of art, when we look at objects that come from sources less known to us. Whereas I wanted to turn to contemporary art because that is not where your focus is institutionally, although you do a lot of things that touch on the contemporary world. So how are you ensuring the relevance of your collections in a world which is completely consumed by contemporary art, an art world that's lost the plot? <laughs> As they say in my favorite TV show, you might think that. I couldn't possibly <laughs> comment. <laughs> Um, I, I feel very strongly that one of the things that we need to do as museums that house primarily art of the past is to use those collections to um, help people think about really challenging topics in a distanced way. So we can talk about, for instance, issues of global trade, the trade in human beings, uh, through an object that otherwise would not be thought of as anything but this little decorative pot. So my favorite object in the museum right now, or one of them, is a little um, Meissen chocolate pot. And, um, you know, if you think about this object just as a Meissen chocolate pot, someone's going to say, well, I don't really care. I mean, sure, I drink my coffee out of a out of a mug that's ceramic, but what, what does this thing have to do with my life? I, I'm not rich. I don't have any understanding of this. Why is this important? And then all of a sudden you start talking about what does it take to make chocolate? How was chocolate farmed? How was it discovered? What, what about sugar? How was sugar produced? And what did those things coming together in this small little piece of ceramic mean for the person who was consuming it? How then do you um, talk about the people whose identities are completely lost, many of whom yeah. were women who were either associated with the object as artists or who were users or patrons? So I'm fascinated by the way that we can use these objects to open up subjects that are really important current subjects. Um, disease, you know, all these items that we think don't have anything to do with art, they can be found in a single chocolate pot. And You know, I obviously agree, but I guess I'm curious how <laughs> you get others to agree in numbers sufficient to warrant the intense commitment that's required of you or of other institutions that are not in the contemporary space, that are not doing rain rooms and Kusama installations and the like. So I think it's really up to us to bring together uh, thoughtful teams of people who can create spaces in the museum that are compelling and exciting and in which stories are told um, that are undergirded by incredible scholarship, but that are not precious in the ways that they talk about those objects. Um, and, and then that's really hard for us to do, right? We're taught not to wear our learning lightly. We're taught to sort of talk at people um, and tell them what to think about an object. Where, whereas everyone has a relationship with an object when they are looking at it. So asking the person to engage in a conversation 
that's what we have to do. And we've been really fortunate at the Walters to be able to do that through programming um, by bringing artists or musicians in to create space where they are interacting with our historic collections, making a contemporary work of art that is ephemeral in some cases, but in which the audience is also participating. So participatory doesn't just have to be a rain room. It can actually be a performance. Yeah, and you have free admission. So that changes completely the dynamic of what it means for your institution to be welcoming, doesn't it? And let me tell you, free admission is the biggest gift that our donors have given us and our founder um, who opened the Walters and gave it to the museum, to the, gave the museum to the city of Baltimore for the benefit of the public with free admission as part of his will in, in 1931. And we opened as a free museum in 1934, a free public civic museum in 1934. But free admission as a bedrock of what we do allows people to come in for five minutes, it allows them to come in for five hours, we are the only free museum in Baltimore. And although we share free admission to the general collection with the Baltimore Museum of Art, our great sister up the street, but they, as do so many other museums that are free in this country, charge for special exhibitions occasionally. So we don't even do that because we wanna make accessible on individuals' own terms, their interaction with works of art. I always say, you know, a moment of wonder can come while you're walking through an air-conditioned space. Mm -hmm. in the summer or your moment of wonder can you know catch you on the way to the restroom that that is the closest restroom in downtown baltimore without having to purchase something and that's 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 the key we're a public space we are a civic center and i think your board understood early on that and continued to understand that admissions revenue in our country is not usually a significant driver of revenue for all but a very few institutions literally a handful that it represents two, three percent of the operating revenues of most museums in this country. That's right. And we, as I said about the COVID situation, that is part of the reason that we are in such a huge financial place of privilege in this moment yeah. is that we we don't have a significant earned revenue stream. And because our board leaned into this in 2008 and instead of building a building or you know committing to uh, a campaign to build a building they chose in 2008 to continue an endowment campaign that ran and added 30 million dollars to our endowment between 2008 and 2015 and you know that is why we are where we are today and they continue to give 90 percent of our annual revenue is through contributed income, whether that's past contributed income that's situated in our, in our endowment or contributed income in our annual budget. I will also say that Maryland is an incredibly uh, fortunate place to be because we are the number three state in the country in terms of government support for the arts, both at the city level and the county level and the state level, um, we depend on government support. So yeah. that is huge. And yeah. we thank, thank our, our legislators and our um, government officials. May that banner yet wave. So let me just close with a question about what young people might be interested in, which is, they're inspired, I'm sure, to hear how you describe your evolution and your experiences. What advice do you give to a young person who might be interested in a career in museum work? 
I think following your passion is what you have to do in your life. Because as someone once said to me, all work is hard, right? At some point it gets really hard and you have to really love what you're doing. And what I would urge people to do is to think of the museum as a microcosm for um, the economy. We have graphic designers, we have engineers, we have financial professionals, we have um, development you know, professionals, people who enjoy raising money. We also have curators and conservators and educators, but it's not just curators, conservators, and educators. So if you have a passion, it is likely that you will find a spot and a place for you in the museum. And there's nothing better than having your passion express itself for the benefit of the people, for the broadest audience as possible. And that's what museums do. We are there for the broadest audience as possible. And thanks to the amazing creatives of the past. Julia, thank you so much for making time for today's conversation. And I'm sure a lot of listeners would love to know how best they can follow your activities online. So we have a great webpage at thewalters.org. And we are also very active on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And we look forward to seeing you there. If you tweet us, we will retweet you. (laughs) Well, you can count on it. Julia, thank you so much and appreciate your time. We've been speaking today with Julia Marchari-Alexander. Andrea B. and John H. Laporte, Director of the Walters Art Museum. Thanks again, Julia. Thank you, Max. It's been so much fun. For me too. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Art Scoping. <laughs>